Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be looking at the passage this morning, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. 4 through 7. So this will be the last in our series on the means of grace. Hopefully it's been edifying for you all and informative and and maybe paradigm shifting in some ways. (laughs) Coming from different backgrounds and different views on what's happening in church and how how do we grow in our Christian faith? How do we hear from the Lord? How are people saved? And in this series we've tried to look at what are these things that we call the means of grace, these these means that God uses to save and to change his people. And we looked at, tried to, we tried to define that, what it is, how it works, how God brings grace that's been purchased by Christ on the cross, how he brings that to our souls, how he nourishes and feeds his people. He doesn't leave us as orphans. He ministers to us by his word and spirit. And then we looked at baptism, this great sign of union with Christ, of dying to our old self, being raised in resurrection life. And we also looked at the Lord's Supper, this thing, this repeated sign, this repeated sacrament or ordinance of the church where we remember our fellowship, not only with one another, as we come and we take of one bread and one cup, but we also remember our union with Christ, that he has united us by his spirit, and we have great joy in those things. And this morning we're going to look at prayer, prayer as a means of grace, this final thing that we'll look at. And really, there's a lot of confusion around prayer. I think we all know as Christians that we're supposed to pray, right? Paul says to pray without ceasing, and I think many of us know that we shouldn't neglect prayer. We shouldn't, we shouldn't stop doing it. We know it's an important thing. If I'm honest, this is a weakness in my own life, right? I fail to pray. I know I should be praying, I, and I don't do it. And there's a lot of confusion around prayer, and I think that leads to one of two things. It either leads to neglect of prayer, where we fail to pray. We're confused about what it is, what it actually does, and so we just don't do it. Or there's a distortion or an abuse of prayer that's viewed as this sort of manipulative tool that we can get God to do things that we want. And so we don't want to have a superficial understanding of prayer. We also don't want to have a superstitious view of prayer. And so this morning we're going to look at God's word. We're going to see that prayer is a gift God has given his people. It's a gift that he's given. And we have to, before we can see that gift, we have to ask some very basic questions. What is prayer? (laughs) What is it? What is prayer? How should we pray? In what manner should we pray? What should we pray for? And then, why is prayer necessary? Why does God command us to pray? Even though he knows what we're going to pray before we even pray it, why is it necessary? What does prayer do for us? And so this morning, we'll see that prayer is ultimately a means of grace. It's a pouring out of our soul, of our hearts to God in praise and adoration and thanksgiving and confession and acknowledgement of who God is and dependence upon him. And at the heart, really, it's communion with God. It's communing with our God, our triune God, resting in his promises and trusting that as his children, he hears us, (laughs) that he's not deaf. That he's not a dead God, but he hears his people when they pray. So if you want to look at your copy of scripture, 
Philippians 4. This comes at the end of this letter that Paul has written to the church at Philippi, that he is in chains and he is writing to them about the importance of the gospel, what God has done in Christ, that he's humbled himself, taken on the form of a servant, that he's humbled himself even to the point of death. And he uses this to talk about the righteousness that these people have by faith, not according to works of the law, but by believing in what Christ has done in salvation. And yet, this doesn't leave Paul in a stagnant state. He presses on, and you can see at the end of chapter 3, he says, I press on, I press on, I haven't achieved glorification yet, I'm, I'm pressing on, I'm not stagnant in my Christian walk, I'm pressing on. And he even talks about some that have departed from the faith, they've, they've forsaken meeting together, they've, they've chosen earthly pleasures, their, their belly, they've chosen those things over the pleasures of of Christ and the riches of heaven. And so he talks to the Philippians about their citizenship being ultimately in heaven, not on the earth, but in heaven. And it's in that context that Paul encourages encourages these Philippians that even though he's in chains, he exhorts them in this way. This is written from a man that's in prison. And he says these words in verse four. So I'm gonna read the passage I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at God's word. So this is the word of the Lord. Paul says this, Rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging who you are, that you are the creator and we are your creatures that you in your infinite wisdom have created us, you have made us, you've breathed life into us, you've given us breath this very morning, and we have so much to be thankful for this morning. And so we, we pray, Lord, we, we ask that you would meet with us here, that as we come as your church to hear the word, to sing the word, to pray the word, Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would enlighten our minds, that we might know the glory of Christ, and the grace that you have given us. And that as this morning we look at prayer, we pray that you would, that you would minister to our hearts, that we, would, that we would call upon you, that we would pour out our hearts to you this morning, knowing that you hear us, that you command us to pray, because it's for our good, that it changes us, that it, that it brings life to our very souls, that it is a means of grace. We pray that we would see that this morning in your word. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So this passage is not unique. It's not the only place where the scriptures talk about prayer. That Paul here, even though he's in change, these last words he's given to the church, what does he tell them? To pray. <laughs> to pray in everything. With thanksgiving, he calls them to pray. 
And it's not the only way that Paul does this. In the book of Ephesians, if you were to go there into chapter 1, we see that Paul uses this as the beginning of his letter, that he talks about how encouraged he is by the people, that he has heard of their faith and their love towards one another. And he uses this as an opportunity to talk about how he has been praying for them. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And he encourages them to pray that their minds would be enlightened, that they would see the glory of Christ in the gospel, the immeasurable power that God has exercised toward them in saving them and saving them from their sins. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, this famous moment right before he's about to go to the cross. He prays that God's will would be done and not his own. You could go all the way back to the Old Testament, to the Psalms, where we see, even though these are songs that are recorded in the Scripture, we see these are not just songs, but are, some of them are even prayers. It'll say a prayer of David, that these Psalms were written in such a way that they were prayers, articulated prayers to God, sometimes in confession, as we read this morning, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, sometimes prayer of thanksgiving for all that God has done. And so we see throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, prayer is something God's people do, whether it's Abraham, Moses, the prophets, Jesus, the apostles, no one's exempt from prayer. But many of us, myself included, we don't always understand prayer rightly. And so that, this morning, that's what we're going to do. If you want to look at the outline this morning, it's printed on the back of our lyrics this morning, so no one can ever say I'm not conscientious about trees or anything like that. I put it on the back, so let the record show that. But so if you want to follow along, our outline this morning will be fairly straightforward. We're going to ask the question, what is prayer? What is it? Then we're going to look at this idea of thankfulness and the heart of prayer. And then finally, we'll look at prayer as a means of grace. And so I'm not very original. You've probably noticed that at this point. I, I'm, I'm relying on the people that have come before us in many ways. And so our confession of faith this morning was the definition that our catechism gives to what is prayer. And so I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel or come up with a new hip way of, of talking about prayer. Prayer is an old thing. And so we need to look at it in that context. And so just a couple of things to point out this morning. What does it say? It says prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. Four things agreeable to his will were to pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, in confession of our sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. As one Puritan put it, John Bunyan, who has written the second most printed book in the history of the world, The Pilgrim's Progress, he, he defines prayer like this. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, and affectionate pouring out of the soul to God. Through Christ, in the strength and assistance of the Spirit, for such things as God has promised. A pouring out of the soul, or as we say, an offering up of our desires. And so something should be clear right from the get-go that there's this parallel, this imagery that's being evoked in this language of pouring out or offering up. And that's one of the sacrifice. If you were to go to the Old Testament and read about the sacrifices that the people offered, they would offer them up to God. They would be burned and the, the, the smoke would rise to the heavens or there was even drink offerings that would be poured out 
as an offering, as a sacrifice. And so this imagery of sacrifice and offering is present in prayer, not only in these definitions, but in the scriptures. If you were to go one psalm before, Psalm 51, you would see prayer referred to as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. A sacrifice of thanksgiving that David is picking up on this language of sacrifice and prayer. And he's connecting them. And if you go to the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation, chapter 8, you would see that, that the prayers of the saints are, are symbolically referred to as this incense that's rising up to God. And so prayers, like sacrifices, are sweet-smelling aromas that rise to God. And so this imagery is present in the scriptures. And maybe we can start to think of when we pray that this is sort of what's happening. Our, our desires, our offering up to God is rising to him. And while this might seem like an insignificant point, it's important to point out that our prayers are to God. <laughs> They're not to anyone else. We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to saints. We don't pray to our ancestors or the universe in general. We pray to God, the triune God, the one who made us, the one who sustains us. And so many religions, many other religions and cultures pray. That's not a unique thing to Christianity, right? Buddhists pray, Muslims pray, Mormons pray. These are not unique things. Many cultures and religions pray, but biblical prayer is to the triune God, to the Father, through the mediation of the Son, by the power of the Spirit. So prayer is an offering up as a sacrifice. It's offered to God alone. And prayer, another thing to point out about these definitions is prayer is a request. It's a request for things that are necessary, both body and soul. What we need, we're asking God, we're requesting, we're these supplications, we are bringing them before God and asking, requesting for things that we need. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how do I pray? I might know what prayer is, but how do I pray? In what manner do I pray? What do I pray for? Maybe you're thinking that this morning. Maybe you've never prayed, really. Maybe you don't know how to pray. How, how do I come before God, the holy God, the creator of the universe? How do I come before him in this form of prayer? Well, luckily, our Lord has not left us alone. He's not left us without help. He's given us a help, a guide. And we find that in Matthew chapter 6. We find that in the Lord's prayer. That Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching them not only how to pray, but what to pray for. He's teaching them not only how to pray, but what to pray for. We could say he's teaching them the form of prayer and the content of what prayer should be. And this is all generally speaking, right? He's not saying you can only pray the Lord's Prayer. He's teaching them generally the form and content of what prayer should be. And what's interesting is this is in the context of error, in the context of hypocrites, Pharisees. Jesus is talking to the people about the hypocrites. They, they, they like to go into the public places and show everyone how magnificent their prayer is and how holy they are. And he says they've already received their reward. 
He talks about the Gentiles that, that have empty phrases. They're just praying about nothing. They're not really saying anything. And he says, this is how you should pray. And so he teaches them to pray in this way. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we see a structure here, and I'm not the first one to point this out. There's a structure. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. There's a structure to the Lord's Prayer. It's not just a random collaboration of different words and phrases. It's specific. It's structured. There's an, there's an address at the beginning, our Father who's in heaven. We see it at the same time. We see this closeness, our Father, that we get to call God our Father, that we've been adopted into his family. We're not just random children. We are God's people. We are his children, and we get to call God our Father. And yet at the same time, he's in heaven. <laughs> there's this transcendence when we pray. We're not just talking to God the same way we talk to one another. He is different. He is other than us. There's an address. And then the, the, the prayer is broken up into two main parts. The first three petitions are concerning God, his, his name, his kingdom, and his will. And then the second section is concerning us, our needs, our sins, and our deliverance. And so we see this pattern emerge that God comes first, his kingdom, his will, his name, and then us, our needs, our sins, our deliverance. This is the structure of the Lord's prayer. And there's many things that we could pull out and talk about that here. And concerning God's name, there's this immediate recognition that we are creatures, <laughs> that he is holy and that we are not. And that we want to see his kingdom advance, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of salvation, Christ's saving kingdom. We are praying that that would be advanced on the earth. We're praying that God's will would be done, not his secret decreed will, right? We don't, none of us know what God's will, his secret will is. It's always done. We're praying that his commanded revealed will would be done. And so when we come to ourselves in the three, the last three petitions, we're praying for our daily bread, our basic essential needs to be met, that God would provide for us, that just as he provides for the lilies in the field, so God would provide for his people. We're praying that God would forgive our sins, that he would hear our cries for mercy, and that he would not only forgive our sins, but he would give us power and strength to forgive others. <laughs> we who know our sin intimately would we be able to forgive people that have sinned against us? And that he would deliver us from the world, the flesh, and Satan himself. And ultimately, at the end, we're acknowledging God's authority, God's power, God's glory. And we're to end with these words, Amen. Let it be so. Let it be so. Breaching a final conclusion to the prayer. And so we see that this Lord's Prayer is not a, it's not something that we just repeat without thinking about, any prayer we repeat without thinking about is not, is not doing anything for us. It's empty phrases. 
in the Lord's Prayer, he's helping us. He's helping us to see what we are to pray for and how we are to pray. But it's one thing to know what prayer is, right? There's sort of this intellectual, intellectual, theological, like, okay, I know what prayer is. I know how to pray, right? I have the Lord's Prayer memorized. I have all the different sections. I have a graft here. That's how I, <laughs> that's how I do it. It's one thing to know that. It's another thing to know why prayer is necessary. Why do we need to pray? What is the heart of prayer? And that gets us to our second point this morning, that prayer is not ultimately this sort of empty phrases that we utter up to God. It's not this, this sort of thing that we use to twist God's arm to get him to do what we want, where we see God as sort of this cosmic vending machine, right? Where we can just sort of ask for whatever we want and he just gives it to us. Prayer is not this formulaic magic thing that we can get God to release things or do things for us. Prayer is primarily an act of gratitude. It's primarily an act of gratitude, or as the Catechism says, a chief part of our thankfulness. That because of what God has done in saving us from our sins through Christ, out of gratitude, we offer up, our, offer up our hearts to God. We pour out our souls to Him. And that as we read in Philippians, what's it say? That in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, that prayer and thanksgiving are connected in the Scriptures. We see this time and time again. Throughout the New Testament and the Old, prayer and thanksgiving are connected. And you might ask, why? Why are we to connect this idea of prayer, of offering up our souls to God, and thanksgiving? And the reason is, is because in prayer, when we come before God rightly, we're acknowledging something crucial. That we are utterly dependent on Him. We are utterly dependent on God. For everything. For our breath for the food on our table, for the shelter over us, for the blood coursing through our veins, for our very life, our families, our loved ones, salvation itself. And we are admitting all of this, whether we realize it or not, when we go to God in prayer. And prayer should change how we see these things. That in prayer, something should happen to our very souls. We are recognizing whether we realize it or not, that God is creator and we're not. Why would we pray to someone that, that can't help us, that doesn't have power to affect change on the earth? We are hope, we're not just hoping, we know that God hears us when we pray, that he is our creator. And so in prayer, we are admitting that God can do something that we can't, that you and I don't have the power to do. We wouldn't pray for something that we can't do. We're asking God to do something that only he can do, whether it's thanking him for the grace that he's given us, whether it's his common grace or his special grace and salvation, or we're humbly asking him to do something that we know only he can do. So we're, in one sense, admitting our weakness. And for us, if we're honest with ourselves, this should be amazing. This should be amazing that God has given us his ear, and especially in light of what we read in Psalm 51 this morning, that when we, like David, 
understand our sin. It's easy to look at David and say, well, he was an adulterer, he was a murderer, I would never do anything like that. And yet, what does Christ say in the Sermon on the Mount? If you hate your brother in your heart, it's as if you've committed murder. If you look at a woman with lust, it's as if you've committed adultery. That none of us are exempt from the sins that David committed. And yet, we realize that we don't deserve to be heard by God. That when we come before a holy God, we are met with the fact that we are not holy. That we are sinners. What does Isaiah do when he's seen this vision of God in the throne room? He doesn't say, yep, I deserve to be here. He falls on his face and he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And that when we come before God in prayer, we, nothing's, nothing can be hidden. Everything is exposed before God. And if you and I know how messed up we are, the honest question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, why would God hear us at all? Why would God turn an ear to our cry? Us who have sinned, why would he hear us? And even if he did hear our cry for mercy, even if he did turn an ear to our cry, how can we know that he will extend grace to us instead of judgment? How can we know that he will extend mercy, divine mercy, instead of divine wrath that we deserve? And the scripture gives us one way. One way, one means by which God hears the prayer of his people, and one means by which God extends mercy and grace to those who don't deserve it. And it's through the intercession and mediation of our great high priest, Christ himself. That's the only reason you and I have a hearing with the maker of the universe. <laughs> There's no other way. There's no other way we have a hearing with the maker of the universe, the Holy One of Israel. It's through only the perfect intercession of our high priest, Christ himself. That in Christ, God has made a way. He's made a way for our humble prayers to reach the throne of grace. That because of Christ, who is both God and man, we have a hearing with the infinite, eternal God. We have a mediator that stands on our behalf. He mediates to God for us, the mediator between God and man. He is the fulfillment of the priests in the Old Testament. He is our great high priest. He's different from them in that he was sinless, the other priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. They had, before they could enter the temple, before they could be heard by God, they had to offer an animal on behalf of their sin. Christ had no sin. He was the sinless one. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, and he never, never sinned. He offered himself up. And as we read this morning in Hebrews 4, he is not only the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest, but what does it say? He's able to sympathize with our weakness. He's not distant from our weakness. That in the person of Christ, 
God knows our weakness. He knows we're weak. <laughs> He's not shocked by the fact that we stink at praying. He's not shocked at the fact that we don't know what to pray for. That temptation surrounds us. Temptation to fall into sin. Temptation to distrust God. To doubt our salvation. To doubt God's goodness. And so we have a high priest who's not just the perfect high priest, but he sympathizes with us. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, because of that, we have confidence. We have confidence to approach the throne of grace in Christ. We're able to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices acceptable to God, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ. And so when we pray, that's why we pray to the Father through the mediation and intercession of Christ by the power of the Spirit. And so we can say this morning that prayer is not just an, a lobbying of empty words, but it, it truly is a means of grace. It truly is a means of grace. That in prayer, God strengthens the faith of his people. God strengthens the faith of his people. When we go to God in prayer, he grows us in grace. And in prayer, very simply, we're acknowledging that we can't, but God can. That he can do something that you and I can't. We're acknowledging that we are weak and we are utterly dependent on him. And so maybe this is individually, maybe this is with a group of other believers, or maybe this is prayer corporately. All of those things God uses to strengthen and grow his people. At an individual level, maybe you're struggling with sin. Maybe you're in a dark, dark watch of the soul that sin has overtaken you. Maybe you've just committed the worst sin of your life. And what do we do in that moment? Where do we go? Do we try to beat ourselves up to make up for that? Do we try to run away from God and hide it or trick ourselves? No, God calls us to come to him in prayer. Maybe you're weighed down with the worries of the world. Maybe you're downcast in your soul. Go to God in prayer. Ask. <laughs> Ask that he would help you, that he would forgive your sin, that he would give you wisdom, that he would lift up your downcast soul. Maybe you're meeting with other believers. Maybe it's in a small group. Maybe you're praying for someone who's sick or you're in a Bible study and you're seeking to understand God's word, go to him in prayer. Say, God, help. Heal this person. Help me understand your word. Help me know it rightly. Prayer is a means of grace. And when we come together as a church corporately, I don't know how many times we pray, maybe five or six times we're praying on a given Sunday. We're asking God to meet with us. We're confessing our sins. We're hopefully praying for other churches. We're praying for our country, the leaders in our country. We're praying for us as a congregation that God would unite us together, that he would help us to hate our sin and pursue holiness. That when God's people pray according to God's revealed will and his word, we are promised that he hears us. <laughs> that when we come together, we're not just hoping we're given the promise, the assurance that God hears his people. And we can cry out to God in prayer. We, can, we don't have to hide anything. We can go to him knowing that he hears us. 
And so as we step back this morning, as we zoom out and try to apply this passage and apply this prayer as a means of grace, we see that prayer is not a means of gain. It's not a means of us getting something that we want. It's a means of grace. It's a means God uses to build up the faith of his people. And I think that once we see this biblical picture of prayer, once we sort of have it defined, we see Christ use the Lord's Prayer to help us, I think it removes much of the confusion, the distortion, and even the, the abuse that is present today in terms of prayer. And just to think of a couple examples this morning, and maybe these are even questions that are on your mind right now. Yeah, that's great what you said, Kindle, about prayer, but what about the verses where it says, if you ask anything in my name, it will be given to you. Ask, and you shall receive. Isn't this a, a blank check, a free pass to ask of God whatever we want, and he'll give it to us? And many of you know this, this verse is used to justify everything from asking for cars and homes and private jets to healing to, you know, miracles to things like this or even something as simple for God to give you better gas mileage in Jesus' name or, you know, right? Or to make sure all the traffic lights are so you can get to your meeting on time, right? It's used to justify all these things. And I think at best, this is sort of superstitious. It's just sort of a an irreverent use of God's name, but at worst, it's blasphemy. It's taking the Lord's name in vain. It's using his name in sort of a flippant, unholy way. And so in Jesus' name is not a magical formula that somehow unlocks things or allows God to do something that he couldn't otherwise do. Praying in Jesus' name is a means, sorry, it means that we are seeking to pray first according to God's will, according to his word, and through Christ's mediation. We're seeking to pray for things according to God's revealed will, what he's shown us in his word, and that through Christ's mediatorial work, we are heard by God. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And the second question, and the bigger question, and the one that might be turning in your head right now, is does prayer change God? Does prayer change God's mind? Does prayer change what God is thinking? Does God have one thing on his mind and when you and I pray it changes God, it affects him and then he changes his mind? Or we could say it like this. When we pray, when we bring our request to God, are we bringing new information to God that he did not know about, new wisdom or counsel that he could not have known to make, help him make the right decision? I think when we say it like that, as R.C. Sproul said, to ask the question is to answer. The answer is no. The answer is no. That we, in prayer, we are not changing God's mind. We're not bringing new information to him. He knows what we're going to ask before we even ask it. And yet there's something, I think, if we're honest in ourselves, that feels difficult about this. And I think it reveals something in our hearts that we want control. We want control. We want power. We want to be able to decree. We want, we want to be God. 
We want to be able to have a say in what happens. We want this control, this power. And even if it's not a malicious or a, 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 an ill-willed control or power, Job, in his suffering, in his profound, profound suffering, he's lost his whole family. He's been plagued with boils. He's lost his land. He's lost everything. And in his suffering, he thinks he knows better than God. He thinks he knows better than God. And what does God say to him in Job 38? He says, were you there when I laid the foundation of the world? Did you give counsel to me when I set the boundaries of the sea? No. And even though there are passages in the beginning of Genesis that seem to imply that God repented or God relented, we have to compare those with the clear teaching of Scripture in other places where it says God is not a man, that he should repent. Or in Malachi 3 it says, I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. That God is unchanging in his essence. He is, the fancy word is immutable. He's all-knowing. He knows all things. We can't bring something to God that he didn't know about. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. And so we can say this, that prayer does not change God. It changes us. It changes us. Prayer is not a means we use to change God, it's a means God uses to change us. Prayer is how we are changed. Our will is brought into conformity with God's will, not the other way around. Our will is brought into conformity to God's will, not the other way around. And this is a grace, brothers and sisters. This is a grace. Our will is not that great. <laughs> we don't always know what's best. God does. And so in prayer, we are submitting to God's will. When we come before God and we say, God, <laughs> hear me. Hear my prayer. Listen to what I'm saying. We are saying several things. We're, we're honest with God. We're admitting that we're sinful. We can't hide something from God. So we can be honest about our sin with God. There's nothing we can hide. There's no secret sin that we can put under a rock like Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. We can be honest about our sin before God. And at the same time, knowing that he gives abundant pardon and grace through Christ. In prayer, we see God's love for his people. We see that God loves us enough to give us prayer, to give us the church, to give us his word. And so we're spurred on. And in prayer, we're reminded that it is the Spirit that sanctifies us, that conforms us to God's image. And so maybe you're saying at this point, okay, but what's the point? If God doesn't change in this ultimate sense, what's the point? But actually, this is how the Scripture grounds our confidence in prayer. How can we know that we're going to be heard? How can we know that God won't change His mind? Because God is unchanging. He's going to stay fast. He is faithful to his covenant. He's going to accomplish his will. And in Christ, our great high priest, we have a hope this morning. That through Christ, God's not going to change his mind about his people. Not even Satan himself 
can bring up our accusations, our sin before God and say, well, you know they did this. Or Satan can't bring up a secret thing. No, God knows all, and through the work of Christ on the cross, we have been pardoned. And so this is the grounds of our confidence this morning, that all of those who are in Christ have been adopted, that we get to call him Abba Father. We get to come before God as a loving, caring Father, that in Christ we have a perfect intercession and a sympathetic high priest who knows our weakness. And we've been given the Spirit himself who helps us in our weakness, as Roman 8 says, that even though we do not know what to pray, the, prayer, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And so this morning, you and I, we will face suffering, we will face persecution, we will, say, we will face trials, tragedy, tribulations, but we can take heart this morning. Because in prayer, what we're saying is, I'm in need. I'm weak. I can't do this. I'm at the end of myself. I have no hope in this world. I can't be better on my own. I can't save this person. I can't make this situation right. I can't be perfect. But we're saying, God, you can. You can, and you will make all things new. We have hope this morning that God hears the prayers of his people, that we can go to the throne of grace boldly because of the work of Christ. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning asking that your name would be made holy, that we would recognize your holiness this morning, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done, and that this morning we would recognize all that you have provided for us, that you have given us our daily bread this morning. And yet we realize how sinful we are, how unworthy we are to receive anything good from you. And yet you give it to us freely. And so this morning, as we think about prayer, as we contemplate what it is, how we are to pray, and why it's necessary, Lord, this morning, we offer up our prayer to you, knowing that you hear us through Christ, and that the Spirit himself helps us in our weakness. We're not going to pray rightly. I don't always pray rightly. We are not always going to remember to pray, Lord, but you help us in our weakness. You minister to your people. And we know this morning that for those who ask according to your will and your word, you hear us. And you give freely and abundantly to your people. And even if we don't receive the answer that we're looking for in this life, Lord, we know that in heaven, your will will be done perfectly, finally, at the great and final day. And we look forward to that this morning, even in our suffering. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.